loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I welcome Tembi Locke. Tembi, an actor, mom, author, advocate, chef's wife, and now young widow, is passionate about two things, the power of storytelling as a tool to inspire meaningful connection, and savoring the flavors, food, and kitchen wisdom from her favorite place in the world, Sicily. An accomplished actor with over 60 television and film performances to her credit, including The Magicians, NCIS LA, Bones, Eureka, Dumb and Dumber 2, Friends, and Proven Innocent, Tembi's also the author of the book From Scratch, A Memoir of Love, Sicily, and Finding Home. From Scratch is the story of losing her beloved chef husband to a rare cancer and the transformative path she embarked on to heal her heart and rebuild her life. Early reviewers have called the book lyrical, utterly incandescent, and shimmering with hope and inspiration. And New York Times bestselling author Claire Bidwell-Smith says, you will be forever changed by having turned these pages. Away from the camera, Tembi's advocacy work stems from her personal experience as a long-term cancer caregiver and focuses on families facing illness, community building, and sharing inspiration when it matters most. She's a nationally recognized speaker for her keynotes on resilience, loss, and motherhood, and her TEDx talk has been viewed by individuals and nonprofits worldwide. She's also the creator and founder of The Kitchen Widow an online platform that encourages and supports connected living during grief and loss. Tembi was born to civil rights activist parents in Houston, Texas, and was named by legendary South African folk singer and anti-apartheid activist Miriam Makiba. Her name, Tembekile, means trustworthy. An Italian dual citizen, she lived in Italy before graduating from Wesleyan University with a degree in art history. It was in Florence where she met and later married her Italian chef husband, Saro. When not acting, writing, or involved in advocacy, Tembi can be found each summer on a beach in Sicily. And otherwise, she resides in Los Angeles with her daughter in a house blessed with 200-year-old fig trees, which must be the reason you chose it, Tembi. Welcome to Good Grief. Here, I've admired um, this, this radio cast for a very long time, so I'm really honored to be here. Thank you. Oh, I'm so happy to have you. I want to start off just by saying that I've read in the hundreds of books about grief. I have never 
uh, had my appetite so wetted, my actual physical appetite <laughs> so wetted by mm. a book, uh, mm. which was so beautiful and felt so true to what you were describing that I just kept getting so hungry. Um, so thank you for that. <laughs> I actually well, had to you step are- away and eat a few times. <laughs> oh my gosh, you are quite well. Trust me, I ate a lot while I was while I was eating the book, reading the book, eating the book. See, there you go. <laughs> Uh, and and just for listeners, there is a recipe section at the back, which I intend to try every one because oh, um, they're, they're just such beautiful descriptions. So thank you for that. Um, so let's just, you know, uh, I, I feel we could talk for way more than an hour about your experience and this book. And um, so... I feel any conversation we'll have will we'll have something's missing. <laughs> but uh, could you tell people to begin with about meeting Saro and uh, you know such a uh, unusual meeting and and life changing moment? I've had a few th- few of those, uh, and I resonated with how life changing that random moment was. Could you talk some about that? Oh, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, so yes, I, um, you know, I, I met Sato as, um, by chance. <laughs> I was a college co-ed, um, living in Florence, Italy at the time studying with my junior year abroad. And I quite literally was walking down the streets in Florence and, um, I rounded a corner and I bumped into this beautiful man. Um, and you know, where, one would think two strangers bump into one another, you know, you know, in exchange of a polite, you know, I'm sorry, you know, <laughs> excuse me, and move on. My life changed from that very meeting, largely due to him, because um, he kind of did a little reconnaissance and figured out, you know, where to find me, which might sound, you know, to, to modern ears or in today's terms, like, you know, stalking, <laughs> but it wasn't. <laughs> he actually had a mutual friend in common and he inquired about me. And um, then, you know, we began a friendship effectively. And, but that chance meeting, you know, something, there was a spark there immediately. Of course, I was 20 years old and I was a little too young and, sort of my head in the clouds and I was in a foreign country, you know, the idea that this person would change the course of my life never entered into my imagination. Um, And in fact, you know, it, 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 it took a little bit for us to really, or for me perhaps, because I think he was more clear in his knowledge that this is a very special person and someone that I want to spend, you know, my life with. I mean, he actually kind of said that, so that kind of love at first sight was really clear to him um, in a way that for me, I had to kind of, he, he inducted me into that. And boy, was it a beautiful, beautiful journey and a beautiful ride. Uh, right at the beginning of the book, you say, I could see now that Saro had appeared in my life and almost instantly created form where there had mm-hmm. only been space. Yes. I thought because- that was so beautiful. <laughs> Thank you, uh, and thank you. That really, you know, one of the things about writing about Sato after his passing, and I began, um, you know, in earnest writing the book five years after, in fact, it was the, actually the anniversary, of, uh, as I approached the fifth anniversary of his passing, where I felt that I was fully ready to tell the story, and I felt 
that I knew um, sort of how I would tell the story, just from a writing point of view, structure, how I wanted to anchor the story, the sort of drive, emotional drive of the story. I felt like I was ready to begin to commit that to page. But the other piece in that is going back and, you know, I had had five years of memories which were really tethered to my longing and missing him, right, which is what we do after loss. And to sort of go back and remember what that first meeting was and to really immerse myself back in those early months when we first met really became a gift for me in the writing because I got him back in another sense, five years, some five, you know, years after his passing. And and I was able to see at, you know, by then a 45, 46-year-old woman who what he did what he offered, what he presented, his that meeting offered to my 20-year-old self. And I realized in the course of the writing of the book that I had never really known, and I try to talk about this in the book, I had never really, you know, I was 20, but above beyond 20, I, I hadn't really known love. And certainly I come from divorced parents, which I talk about in the book, and I think that has its, is its own kind of loss. And I don't know that I really understood love as a permanent, as a as a as as a pos- something that could possibly be, possibly be permanent, and so um, Sato's presence, you know, really filled in that space for me. He filled in an understanding of mm. what was possible in the way of a life and in the way of love, and he really created, you know. F- from space <laughs> where there was <laughs> void and then there was him and boy did he fill it <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure well it uh it, it's interesting because it actually brought up my memory of the first time I met my wife who died as well when I was mm-hmm. 42 and we uh the same age more or less yeah yeah um and I was 16 at the time mm-hmm. um so there's this just this recognition moment where I remember looking at her and her looking at me and recognition. But of mm-hmm. course, a 16 year old has no idea no. where <laughs> where this yeah. may take yeah. you. Um, no, and the, not a clue yeah, the, in the world. <laughs> not a clue in the world. And I was also very touched that um, Sato carried that uh, so deeply. I'm thinking of of how he waited out in the rain until you woke up. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, after work, he was coming to see you and you didn't answer the door because you were sleeping. Mm-hmm. Um, that yeah, that yeah. He, he really exemplified that commitment that you, you um, grew into, uh, as yeah. I understand it. Caregiving yeah. does that, doesn't it? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he, it was, you know, it was more than, you know, you know, listen, I was in Italy. <laughs> Italy is a country known for romance and love and all of that, right? And so right. to be told, oh, you know, I love you. I want to spend my time with you. You know, I'm doing a, a very bad Italian accent right now. Um, but to be told all of that, right, is one thing and to hear it and, and, and really feel it in your heart. But it is another thing to make um, and I think I say this in the book, you know, to make those declarations and then put them into action. And Sato was very much a, a man more than of, you know, his, he was a man of his word, but he found a way in love to really make love an action and to put it in, um, you know, really make it un, an, an undeniable uh, experience. 
And yes, that scene where that moment when he, you know, waited for me, you know, past the point that I think, you know, many people would have, you know, thought to wait because he, he, he really, um, he was just unwavering in that way. And I could see, you know, after his passing, I, you know, as we do in grief, I think, or for me, it happened, I would have these flash memories that, you know, anything could trigger them. And there came a point um, where I would just write them down, the memories, because I was so, so afraid of losing them. And right. um, I had, re- you know, I had remembered the moment in the rain. Um, we even, you know, talked about it. We joked about it in the early years of our marriage. But somehow, over the years and also over the time um, immediately following his death, you know, I couldn't access those memories. And so when it came to me again, when I remembered and I wrote it down, I thought, oh my gosh, what, how incredible was that <laughs> for someone <laughs> to do that? And to be 20 and to see that and say, oh my gosh, this is a person is, this is special. He's serious, huh? <laughs> yeah, he's serious. He's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, the other thing that does stand out uh, and is interlaced throughout the book is just coming from um, very different backgrounds, uh, him, Sicilian, and I want to say Sicilian instead of Italian, although before your book I had no, wouldn't have differentiated, <laughs> mm-hmm, <laughs> but mm-hmm. but now I would. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but there is and, a difference, and, exactly. Yeah, and you, African-American from Houston, very different traditions, which resonates with me also. My wife was African-American. She was from the Mississippi Gulf Coast. Oh, wow. uh, and and similar discomfort in her family in particular, my family at first, but they got over it pretty quickly. Uh, of course, there's the woman thing, too, that added. Yes, there's, there's <laughs> always an extra the layer picture. in there, right? Somehow. <laughs> um, but, you know, that, that sense of something that, um, a love that is so undeniable, but causes so much... Uh, having to deal with um, very complicated life decisions. Uh, in his case, he he left Italy to come here with you, yes? Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly, exactly, exactly. And the ways that, that um, you know, yes, so to, to your point about the book being also about sort of cross-cultural, um, the cross-cultural dynamic in our love, you know, which... Um, so more than just, you know, we were star-crossed lovers, we were also, you know, cross-culturally um, finding our way from two very different spaces and cultures and even languages. And, um, you know, initially, you know, I was obviously studying Italian there, so I knew some Italian. Luckily, Sato spoke really, you know, pretty good English early on. And um, so our friendship really grew, and I knew that, there was no template in my life. You know, no one had gone and studied abroad in my family. I mean, my parents were, you know, had grew, grew up in segregated, you know, rural East Texas. And, you know, both of them were parts of the, you know, uh, the first um, students to help to integrate their universities. So, you know, that was as far as they'd gotten, which was like, you know, a two-hour ride on the highway, you know, from from East Texas to, you know, either Austin or Houston. This idea that a college student would, you know, from our family would be in another country studying was already a big leap. And then when I fell in love there and this idea that as implausible as it sounds, as improbable as it sounded, that we could make a life together, 
um, was, you know, I, I think my parent it gave my parents pause, you know, for sure. And on his family side, you know, they, he had broken with a long line in his family, a tradition of, you know, a very agrarian way of life, farming, and he wanted to be a poet and to study, to be a translator, and so he, he had left Sicily to study university, the first in his family to go to university, and he was living in Florence when we met. So here we are both kind of having broken from our families of origin to some degree, his a more fracture in terms of their emotional connection, um, and we fall in love, and then we kind of have to communicate to both of our families that we want to be together forever, and one family takes it one way, and another family takes it another way, and I won't give away too much of the book for those who haven't read it, but um, he does come to, you know, we, 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 we chose to live together in the States, and he comes here, and, you know, the book is about how these two families, over the course of a lifetime, begin to... Um, find each other, right, and begin to yes. know each other. And so what begins in the book is all as this sort of um, by chance meeting of deep romantic love, right, it, by the end of the book, I think what we have is this bigger story of a much bigger love that is rooted in that, in that romantic love, but it's also much greater and the way our families uh, come together. Of course, that, that intersects with the theme of this show, which is the radical ways in which people sometimes change as a result of difficult experience. Yes. And, and to me, your book so deeply uh, embodies that. Uh, not, not just you and he, but everyone surrounding you um, yeah. change so dramatically and so think- beautifully. Thank you for saying that. I really do feel, I mean, I can see that now at the time, of course, you know, I couldn't see it fully, but right. that sense of, I think that the, the given life circumstances that Sato and I encountered, right, from our meeting and our falling in love and decided to become married to later in the book when we discover that he has been diagnosed with uh, a rare cancer through, you know, becoming parents by ad- adopting our daughter, um, and then his passing, all of us he and I as individuals and as a couple, but also our families, we all had to kind of up our game a little bit. You know, mm. we had to step, yes, step <laughs> indeed. And, yeah, we did. We had to like up our heart game on like, you know, uh, yes. <laughs> not just, in order to, because life was asking something incredibly large of us. And we had a choice point to either step into it and lean into it or to pull away. And I think that that's the, what I learned over the course of my life and what I try to communicate in the book is the ways in which we seek in our own ways, however big or small, we may falter, we may stumble, but we are attempting to move into that bigger, more expansive space. And I love on, you know, before we jumped on the, on, uh, you know, in, into our interview today, I, w- I found um, um, something on, on your website about, you know, sort of igniting courage, Right, and the ways in which these big life experiences sometimes can ignite courage within us, and I love that, and I feel like that is kind of you know what the the promise or the hope of the book is that it it, it both um, ignites courage, um, it shows how my family and myself, my husband, our courage was ignited, but also maybe for the readers that it become a place something I, I that definitely when they finish, I. 
I definitely think so, Tembi. Let's let's talk about that more after our break because we have Absolutely. to take a break now. But that that idea of these really difficult experiences igniting our courage and our better selves uh, is is that in my heart, (laughs) very big. So we'll come back to that in a minute. And listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. There's connections to everything there. And I just also want to mention that there's a link to my to my novel on my host page, An Ocean Between Them, which tells the story of a mother and daughter trying to find their way back to each other when a cancer diagnosis pushes them to mend what's broken. And uh, that's right up the alley of what we're talking about right now. To find Tembi Locke, you can go to www.tembilocke.com. That's T-E-M-B-I-L-O-C-K-E.com. Be back soon. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Have you stopped to think seriously about hypnosis? Hypnosis can set you on your way to better health, can free you from anxiety, phobias, and so much more. Join host Inez Simpson for Hypnosis Everywhere. Inez Simpson and the Simpson Protocol. This show is for anyone from the experienced hypnotist practitioner to the merely curious. Inez Simpson offers tools and insights from the whole world of hypnosis with guests and open discussions. Hypnosis Everywhere, the Simpson Protocol, airs live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main VoiceAmerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Relationship issues, anxious, parenting challenges, no more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Tembi Locke about her book, From Scratch. And before the break, Tembi, we were just talking about these these incredible moments that change your life. And, mm-hmm. um, and during the break, we were kind of talking about 
how there are decisions to be made about that too. There's the the uh, you know fate or chance or whatever we want to mm-hmm. call it. Mm-hmm. But then there are the decisions that are made to show up for that uh, yeah. when when life inevitably happens. Can you talk a little more about that for yourself? Yeah, I mean, I I I'm, I am fascinated with the at this point in my life of you know looking at the ways in which you know uh, something that happens to us by chance. In my case, meeting when I met Sato. And then, you know, um, the choice points we have in life. So, you know, in my case, I talked about the chance meeting Sato, but then also by chance, his diagnosis of cancer. And, and at these moments, then we're, when present, when life gives us this fate or this destined thing, then we have to actually choose to step into it or pull back from it. And, and for me personally, um, I, I certainly feel that my 10 years as a caregiver, right, as a cancer caregiver, really, um, taught me how to sort of, I had to learn how to approach pain and difficulty with a creative and open heart, Mm. which is to say that I had to find some piece of my heart that could allow for, if you will, consent of this experience that I didn't choose as opposed to meeting it with resistance. And Mm. because I love that. And, and so by, 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 with a certain kind of consent to at least lean into it, a consent to try to make peace with it, to understand it, to let it open me up in some way, I found actually a kind of source of empowerment. Because often, like with, our, with the cancer diagnosis, you feel so unempowered, Right. It's yes. like something so much bigger has, has, has like, you know, people use all kinds of images and metaphors, a battle axe, you know, a, a thing, something that has just come in and, 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 and changed your life. And so um, to resist that and push against it is very fatiguing. <laughs> it's <laughs> exhausting. It it's yes. exhausting. It doesn't help. But it, 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 it takes a long time, or at least I can only speak for myself. It took me a long time to learn to, to be with it in a way that allowed it to do whatever work it was supposed to do in my life and to sort of reframe how I looked at it. And, I, and by the way, that's an exercise that I had, to const- I had to work that muscle over 10 years because some days, you know, I did resist it. And that's not to say that I was like, oh, this is, this is great. I'm going to take this as a life change. No, I Never, never I got cried. to cancer myself. <laughs> don't want to go, don't want to ever get there. <laughs> yeah. But, so but I, yay, accepting that it's the truth of what's happening. It's the I truth of what's happening, and there's, there is a sense of empowerment in standing in the truth. There's, there's also a paradox I'm aware of, and maybe uh, one, one vantage point from which I read your book is that I also was, was raised by an activist family. My dad spent a good part of my childhood in the South, you know, fighting for civil rights and, and all, and um, there's an activist aspect to you <laughs> uh, that that really stood out. For instance, not accepting that his family was rejecting, you know, <laughs> kind of. Um, and w- one one that really stood out for me because I could so easily imagine it was uh, y- there was a whiteboard in his room, and you wrote on it, 
caring family, Tembi, wife, black woman sitting in the corner because two nurses asked if you were the help. Yeah. Uh, uh, that didn't, didn't surprise me, but it broke my heart, you know, that at these moments when we're, when we're uh, working so hard to, uh, to be present and we're so vulnerable, uh, I can remember many experiences that I had like that over the course of my wife's illness where yes, you know, did you're, you're clobbered by this other thing, right? <laughs> yeah, because that's the ever-present thing, right? That also is just a part of, you know, moving in, in, in the world, and that doesn't get put aside just because my husband's dying, right? right. And when those two things are happening in the same moment, it's almost unbearable. It's, it just felt like it just, it was, it was, it was, it was too much. So I think to your, to your, you know, it's interesting in writing the book, I have never thought of myself in the term, you know, as an, you know, quote unquote activist, right? I mean, I come from activist parents. I have my advocacy that I do. I do things. I definitely, um, you know, activate change in my own way, but I could see at the course of writing the book that in a certain way I did inherit that spirit that is within them. I have just chosen, it's chosen a different form. And certainly after he, Sato passed away, a lot of my activist or my advocacy work has been about, um, you know, both advocating for family caregivers and, and grieving families as a, you know, even to, because I'm the child of a, of a grieving the child, um, what, what, what childhood grief looks like. And I really began to see the ways in which unexpressed grief in a lot of ways is a public health crisis, and particularly in certain communities, uh, even more so because of lack of access to medicine or therapy or, you know, um, you know um, socioeconomic issues. So the ways in which we're walking around with grief that is bottled and unexpressed and unsupported creates literally a health crisis, mental health crisis, and in some cases, physical health crisis. And I know for me, that felt, once I really understood how that was affecting me personally, and I could see, oh my gosh, if it's helping, if this is affecting me this way, and I have the resources and the supports to help me get what I need, can you imagine for people for whom those, those, that access is not there? And that scene in the book, which happened while Sato was, you know, in the final months of his life, was a way in which, in terms of navigating the medical system, where I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, this must happen for so many people. So I really wanted to, I, I actually questioned whether or not I should put that in the book, but maybe my, ad, you know, the activist in me as the writer felt that that should go in the book, because I, I think it is many people's experience. And I tried to be as honest as possible in the book. And so, you know, um, to that degree, I think my activism comes from this idea of trying to continue to show and to share all kinds of narratives of the human experience. No, I completely agree with you. In fact, uh, one story from my wife, every time I speak, I tell the story. For that reason, I feel people mm-hmm. need to hear the story, which is that um, she it took a year and a half for her to get diagnosed mm. because she had a backache and no doctor would x-ray her back. And a year and a half in, when finally a doctor did so, her back was broken. It had been broken all that time. Oh my and gosh. the doctor who, who eventually did the right thing and x-rayed her 
apologized and said that it's common knowledge that if a black person shows up with a backache, they're malingering. You know, I, I that that story pains me to know. Oh, end. My heart, yeah. Everything. Well, it, it's and, always broken my heart for sure. Yeah, and I'm glad. But I don't think it's story. uncommon, it's, is it? Yeah, it's it it uh, sadly it's. It, and, and I, I do believe things are changing. There's a great, there's much more awareness. But yes, I think in the in in there are cases in which there people are bringing in their bias, unconscious or conscious. <laughs> and, for sure, for know, sure. And I just know. think it's it's a good thing for us all to be aware of. Sure, uh, sure. I do think it's changed. That was the late '80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's changed some. I know it changed him. Sure. You know, yes. I know it changed and, and him and everyone he encountered after that. Yes, and that's a part of the reason why, you know, initially before I wrote the book, what led me to sort of create, uh, you know, do the TED do the TEDx talk and things. I became, I reached out to say, how can I lend my voice, right, my creative efforts, what I know about this experience that I have had as a long-term caregiver and now, you know, as a newly, you know, widowed um, mother. And, and woman in the world, how could I, how could I sh- use my experiences? You know, I, I reached a point about three years after Sato's passing, and I really, one of the first places I wanted to help was in and around medicine, right, mm. and end-of-life care. And, um, and I've been very blessed to work with some incredible people in that space who are, you know, kind of helping to um, change how medicine is carried out in the 11th hour and the compassion around that and places where sometimes that does intersect with culture and, um, and, and in diversity, right? And that's been a really, it's been a very rewarding experience for me. Uh, including, um, I, I watched one of your talks about uh, the work you're doing in gardens in inner city, oh, yes. which yes. which I just so so loved, and it reminded me of. Uh, I'm guessing you know this, but that there's they've discovered that there's a microbiome in dirt that serves as an antidepressant, and I, I it it explained so much when I found that out because I needed my hands in the dirt every day when I was that first year of grief. Yes, uh, yes. Uh, and it was so odd because I'm not a great gardener or anything, but I just had to. <laughs> so, yeah, well, that. Thank you for bringing that up because I do feel very strongly about the possibility around urban um, gardening. Right. So Sato's family is agrarian, and you know I talked about that a little bit earlier. And my trips to Sicily, what I've been able to see over the many years I've been going, is the ways in which being with the earth is such a salve to the soul, and the ways in which not only do you get this sort of emotional solace, but there's a, it's, there's a healing that can happen. Not the least of which is at the nutritional level. <laughs> you know from the very food that you grow. For sure. And and I've always asked, you know, when I leave Sicily and I'm on my plane on the way back to the States, I always ask sort of, you know, the universe and my friends and anybody who will listen, like, how can I bring a little bit of that back to my life in urban Los Angeles? Because we are moving so fast sometimes and, 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 and the idea of slowing down and being with, you know, the most 
of the Mother Earth at the most basic level. And one of the things that we have here that I was blessed with at my home is gardens. Sado designed a garden for us um, when he was alive, and because that was a part of his roots, right, his ancestral roots. And so he felt like, of course, we should grow fava beans, and you know, in the spring, right. and of course, we should have lettuces in the summer, and of course. And so I could see the way during his cancer treatment, when and where he could, gardening lifted him. I mean, it was undeniable. And then we got to share in the bounty of that through the things that we grew. And so after he passed, I found myself back in that garden. And I write about that the first anniversary. There's a chapter on that in the book and the ways in which I included elements from the garden in that anniversary, that marking of that first year of his passing. And so I do believe, and when and where I can, if somebody would give me a megaphone to sort of like shout out how, you know, grief, uh, what I call grief gardening, right? Or, you know, gardening for as a, both an instrument of healing, but also a way to, <clears throat> um, um, you know, nourish our bodies at the same time. Because the other pieces when we're grieving, often we don't eat well, if at all, you know, if it's we can. so true. And, and you know, and, and it, ha- it has a lot of power. I'm thinking about two projects where, that I've interviewed the founders of. One is called Sobana. It's in Canada. And mm-hmm. um, the woman who started it started it with the person who killed her father. And the two of them have started gardens all the way across Canada for people to um, practice uh, Sobana, which is another word for something similar to restorative justice. Oh, beautiful. Uh, and then the, the second one is a project called Acton on Verba here in East Oakland, uh, where kids are brought to a garden plot in the middle of the city to garden together. And lovely. of course, there's so much grief in the Oakland community. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. So much mm-hmm. loss, so much grief in mm-hmm. certain parts of Oakland, not all of Oakland, but mm-hmm. certain parts of it. So that's a powerful concept that you're, that, that I, um, yeah, I'm I mean, I do have a vision somewhere, you know, maybe in, <laughs> you know, down the line that, you know, um, partnering to be able to really realize this in a very healing way with all of the sort of um, social emotional support systems that go along with the agriculture or the horticulture, I should say, um, would be wonderful. So it's about time for our second break. And when we get back, um, to me, a huge part of your book is about reconciliation and coming back, coming together. And, and of course that did happen for you. And I want to talk, uh, about sort of the paradox of this family difficulty that his family had with with his leaving and his marriage, but then that was the place that you got to go to be taken care of. That that has mm-hmm. so much meaning for me. I want to talk some about that when we get back. Uh, listeners, during the break, you can go to my page at Voice America, the Good Grief Host page. You can also go to my website, weatheringgrief.com. And to find Tembi Lock, you can go to tembilock.com, T-E-M-B-I-L-O-C-K-E.com. Back after the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Ready to transform your health and your world? 
Join host Melissa Alexander for Insight Living with Vitality. Melissa and her guests go behind the scenes on what it takes for practitioners and clients to transform themselves and others. She provides insight to medical procedural breakthroughs, available product resources, and explains lifestyle choices designed to improve and expand your vitality. It's time to get rid of that baggage, remove those blockages, and prevent buildup from hindering your progress in life. Tune in every Monday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse. Exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm here with Tembi Locke talking about her book, From Scratch, her beautiful book, From Scratch. And Tembi, I I really felt it was important to talk about your relationship with Cicely because I felt as if Cicely is a, is a, main, uh, a main character in the book, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. and, and what you could find there, what particularly stood out to me is what you could find there that is so hard to come by in the way we live in the U.S. Um, I'm thinking of a particular part of the book, maybe I'll just read a tiny bit, um, where a vendor was rolling his cart up the, up the street, mm-hmm. um, and he said, my condolences about your husband, 
And just like that, I wanted to fall into his hairy arms. Something inside me softened. This is what a small town could give me that L.A. never could. The guy at the grocery store in Silver Lake didn't know my husband was dead, even though I've shopped there weekly for years. Here, a fruit vendor whose name I couldn't remember knew and remembered that my husband had died. Yeah, I, I was just trying. Moment. I was just trying to viscerally understand what it would be like to grieve in a place that that surrounds one that way. That was um, one of the beautiful discoveries that I had in my travels there after Sato passed and what I really, um, was my challenge really as a writer to bring to the reader was that sense of what I felt in my heart. I was like, how do I articulate this experience? Because uh, most Americans have no parallel. They have no comp, no comp <laughs> for this right. experience. Both, you know, many even just, you know, being able to travel into their own lost period, but let alone take it on the road and to a place that for a place that um, understands grief and grieving in a way that we don't hear. And some of it is the new world, old world. I mean, Sicily is, it has a, is an, you know, a culture that is tethered to ancient traditions. And there's a way in which people hold their grief, their pathos, you know, and they're living their grief and their life side by side all the time. And I really wanted to share that in the book. And so when I, you know, my experience of Sicily, and again, the island is not a monolith, so I am sure. specifically talking about a small town um, and the probably many small towns. Through, a small in the town where Sicily. your a, a small town where your husband's family is yes, is probably exactly. important exactly. too. Exactly. Where you're staying with exactly. his mother and his exactly. And yes. So what I found myself doing was walking into a town, and again, I'd been there before. You know, been there with Fado. You know, many visits. But suddenly, that first summer that I was there without him. On the very, like, just basic level, I literally saw his face in everyone else's face because mm-hmm. many of them are cousins and third cousins and sure. cousins and an uncle. Yes. So it was also this sort of, like, optically, like, my brain was bending, trying to sort of make sense of what I was seeing, you know, in a way that those are the same people who'd been there in previous visits, but because he was alive, I didn't recognize it in the same way. But now I was seeing literally the faces of the people through a different lens. And so he was coming back to me, coming back to life to me in a different way. Then I'm in a town of people who have all of these stories of his childhood that they could Uh, tell me. Remember And your daughter as well, I'm sure. My daughter as well. And then I'm with my mother-in-law in the very house where she was born, right? And so there's all of this history that is, is brought to the forefront that was both harrowing in grief because I both, it was also sometimes overwhelming and dizzying, but it was also deeply anchoring because it was like, oh, he really, not only, you know, that way in which sometimes after grief, you all, for me at least, I felt sometimes, I was like, did I imagine this life? Did I imagine him almost even? It, it, every, the rupture yeah, of my psyche. The unreality. The, the, but it became very real being there in Sicily, right, and seeing childhood photos. But then the piece with the strangers is that because it is a small town, my mother-in-law wore black. Everybody knew she was grieving. And people in the town, her, her, her widow's garb told her story. It told the story of her loss. 
that she was carrying the loss, the story of her husband. Of course, because by, at that point, my father-in-law had passed away, and she was carrying the loss of her son. And so people who knew me as her daughter-in-law immediately knew that he, it was like almost like a visual code, you know? Yes. You know, they knew that, oh, you have lost someone too. And so people would, would unsolicited come up to me and express their condolences would hug me. And I don't mean just the first year. I mean the second year. I mean the third year. You know, and when we, the, t- the town mass is held and his name is said in the church, you know, for the mass each year, you know, people give me a hug. They give me a knowing look. And that I could never get in a big city, in a big American no. city. This is another uh, little paragraph that captured it for me. The first, this is from the first uh, time you went back after he died. The first thing I saw when we turned off left on Via Gramsci was a stoic bridge of aging women and widows lined up on a bench along the stone sidewalk. The widows, as is customary, were dressed in all black. Of varying heights and girths, they sat in front of Saro's childhood home waiting for us. They were prepared for mourning. They had done this before many times for themselves, for family, for neighbors, perhaps since the dawn of time. Sicilians were accustomed to welcoming home the dead. Uh, It just gives me chills to be so, uh, to have grief so visible. Yes. Because, of course, it isn't with us often. No, it's not. And I... I think there's a line in the book where it may have, you know, I, I've said before, I, my grief could be out in the open and my, breath, my grief could breathe in Sicily, if that makes mm-hmm. any sense. Meaning Complete. it has space to be open, to take a breath, <laughs> to, be, to exist in a way that here I was often masking my grief to get to work, masking my grief to get to pick up my daughter from school, you know, holding back the tears because I'm in a public space and crying alone in my home or with my intimate friends. But I couldn't, you know, walking down the street, just cry with a neighbor in a way that I could there. Right. And um, it became a kind of, and, and also because it is a small town, you know, and for many years without even Wi-Fi, you know, there was a kind of vast silence metaphorically and internally that I could find there and I could listen to my own heart. I could listen to my memories. I could listen to my own grief. And um, that was a gift I didn't know I would find there. Well, also, uh, and, you know, this is also uncommon here. It was the gift of time. Yes. Because, uh, you know, you went there and you were not allowed to cook. <laughs> I mean, that wasn't grief related. That was, <laughs> it was your mother-in-law's house and she was the only one who could, correct? Oh, she's a Sicilian mother-in-law. She cooks. I don't cook. She did you know, not let me in her kitchen. Right? <laughs> and, oh, no, you know, exactly. there were many people, your your daughter could have freedom mm-hmm. that that our city kids can't have and Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you could you could wander in your experience much more than most of us get the chance to do in our grief and that seemed so beautiful to me yeah and I wanted to share that because I understood how rarefied that experience was right meaning you know for for a modern American woman and for, you know, any woman, I mean, even if I, you know, lived in Italy I, in at my home was there, you know, I probably would have to do dishes, you know, or do laundry or, you <laughs> if know, you had your bills own or something like that, right? But, 
when you when all with all of that taken away because my mother-in-law, you know, part of the way she shows love and her love language is not only to cook for us but also to say you've come this far, rest. You need to rest. And she was a widow herself at that point the first summer my father-in-law had been gone for 3 years. She understood the power of rest as mm. someone who is deep for someone who is deeply grieving. And so for me she said, you know, basically just be still. And that was a deep gift to me, and I, um, you know, really wanted to share that with readers, one, because it's, you know, a part of the direct experience and a part of my communicating the beauty of Sicily, but also maybe it becomes an invitation that we can find a little bit of that for ourselves here in our lives, you know, in the States. Um, Because I still, I clamor for it when I'm not there, right? (laughs) I try to find those still moments, the quiet and and I do think quiet like likes or uh, gr- grief likes quiet. It likes open space, even if it's even if you're hurting in the open space. Whatever it is that's happening in the open space, it does help us move. I think. I agree. Um, so I've resonated with that. That and it's not that you didn't do things. Um, I loved when you went to make cheese and saw it as a a grief metaphor, which I completely got on board with <laughs> what I would yes, never have no. thought of you know um mm-hmm. and th- yeah that was that. I, I having, loved that having moment. that kind of time to yeah. experiment and um be in yourself and reflect and cry and <laughs> do whatever it is yeah that- and, you know and I will say a lot of that who taught me that was Sato you know a part of his sort of natural um bent in the world, was he was someone who was one, I mean, he, he loved to read and write poetry. He had a kind of sense of the wonder of life, and he looked for the mystery and the sort of, you know, the place he would turn, he was the guy who turned over stones, you know, just out of curiosity. And so just I think... see the other with, side, huh? <laughs> yeah, someone who was living with a chef who saw the world in that way, in his absence, I tried to sort of approximate that. And I said, Sada wouldn't want me to take a walk right now. Okay, go take a walk, you know. And sometimes I would literally hear him, you know, talking to me in my, in my, in my heart and in my mind's eye. And I would say, what would he do right now? Okay, he would probably say, go take a walk. Just slow everything down and go take a walk. And, um, you know, so I can't say that I knew all of those things as a grieving person, you know, or as a widow. I just, you know, kind of followed my instinct. And I think that's what being that's at Sicily the, and having yes. been married to him and the way he was in the world, you know, it was it was all I could do was follow my instinct. I don't know if you had this experience, but I sort of felt like there were moments when my wife jumped into me and mm. what occurred to me to do was not, was more like what she would have done, but it was almost unconscious. For instance, I was never a cook and she was. Uh, she was a really, really wonderful cook. And um, I started cooking after she died. You know, I, I just had to do it. Um, I think there's some way we incorporate, don't we? I think we do. And we Let's, try to be, you know, clo- close to the people, to, to, the, to our close. loved one, you know, in some Absolutely. way. Absolutely. Um, Guess you know, what? Me, we, we, it's getting to be time to go. Can you believe this hour was so I can't fast? I believe it. This has been so much fun. Um, oh, I've enjoyed being with you Thank so you. much. I hope we keep in touch. And I hope people read your book. It, it's just so, so beautiful. 
I know I know that you congratulations your Reese Witherspoon's book of the month is that it's right? The book of the month, and it recently and to uh, you know hit the New York Times bestseller list also. So I well, it, a, it's a well deserved. I want to say that is good. So so stay stay in touch. I want to know everything that happens next. Uh, and Thank again, you. you can get Tembi Lock at tembilock.com, T-E-M-B-I-L-O-C-K-E.com. Next week, join me when I'll have author D.J. Chang. We'll be talking up about her memoir, First Mistake, Facing Death, Finding Life. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.